welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are talking about an old favourite of ours, Pauline Hopkins, who you may remember from season four, episode nine, when we discussed her as part of our season on lost books, unpublished works and marginalised voices. We really really enjoyed Hopkins' novel Contending Forces so if you haven't listened to that episode before I'd really recommend checking it out either right now or like right after this one. For the time being Lauren do you just want to give everyone like a brief reintroduction to Hopkins to get us going? Yeah and she's she's a fun gal. I mean she lives a life she really loves. I love whenever we have a writer that was also an actress. Can I just say that much? Just also doing anything because she it just she was yeah. doing so much, so many things. So Pauline Hopkins was born in Portland, Maine, in 1859, but she grew up in Boston. She was very bright and also very musical, winning essay writing competitions as a child. She performed in a choir. She wrote a musical by the age of 20. And as an adult, she worked as a stenographer, you know, less less glamorous, but also a public speaker. And her first novel, Contending Forces, was published in 1900 when Hopkins was 41 years old. I also love an author that comes to writing mm. a little later. Yeah, definitely. And I don't even want to say 41 is a little later because, listen, it's young. I think comparatively, because you hear like, yeah. oh, you know, She wrote a short story when she was 19 and she never looked back. Right. And she supported her family from the age of six with her writing. And you're just like, wow, (laughs) busy kids. (laughs) Busy. Um, Pauline immediately followed that book with three serialized novels, all written and published between 1901 and 1903. Hagar's Daughter, A Story of Southern Caste Prejudice, Winona, A Tale of Negro Life in the South and Southwest, and Of One Blood or The Hidden Self, which were all serialized in the Colored American magazine. Now, this time around, we are joined by two very special guests, Yuri Don and Brian Sweeney, who I sat down with to discuss their upcoming Broadview Press edition of Pauline Hopkins' Of One Blood, which is a wild book. Wild book. I recommend it. Yuri Dunn is Professor of English at the College of St. Rose. She is an expert in black literature and periodicals of the Jim Crow era. She is author of Jim Crow African American Periodical Cultures, UMass 2021. In this monograph, she examines literature by James Weldon Johnson, Nella Larson, William Faulkner and Jean Toomer in relation to black periodicals such as The Half Century Magazine, The Chicago Defender, Ebony and The Crisis. With Brian Sweeney, she is editor of the forthcoming Broadview edition of Pauline Hopkins' novel of One Blood and director of the digital Coloured American magazine found at coloredamerican.org. Courses she has taught have focused on surveillance and privacy, the Harlem Renaissance, racial passing and sleep. Now, Brian Sweeney is Professor of English and Chair of the English Department at the College of St. Rose, where he teaches and researches 19th century and early 20th century U.S. and Black literature, comparative U.S. ethnic literatures, print culture, love print culture. 
I should go back and study prank culture, guys. <laughs> and critical theory. He is review editor for the journal American Periodicals. And his essay, Throwing Stones Across the Potomac, The Colored American Magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Cultural Politics of National Reunion, was the recipient of the 2021 19th Century Studies Association Article Prize. He earned his PhD in Literature and Cultures in English from Brown University, where he was a Russell C. and Selena H. Wonderlich Fellow. And be warned, guys, there are spoilers for this book, but like, you're not spoiled for the book. Does that make sense? Because so much happens, it's like <laughs> you're just gonna go. I need to dive into this book. What what are what are you telling me? I don't understand the things you're telling me. I need to read it. So so there you go. That's your spoiler warning. Uh, so I guess um, my I should explain that my area of specialization is in 20th century black um, literature and periodicals, mm -hmm. and Brian has the misfortune of having the, the totally incorrect specialization <laughs> of um, 19th century U.S. literature and periodicals. <laughs> so, um, you know, so we're kind of coming at it from like these, um, like the op not opposite, but different sides of the century dividing line. Mm -hmm. And um, Hopkins is sort of the perfect person for us to meet, right? Because mm -hmm. she's kind of right at the turn of the 20th century. And so um, it started out of our digital project, the Digital Colored American Magazine, um, which thanks for the shout out in um, the Contending Forces episode. Uh, and so um, it started there. And I, I guess maybe I should let Brian talk a little bit about um, the origin story for the Digital Colored American Magazine. And then, um, you know, we'll go into the uh, how we got to um, Of One Blood. Yeah, sounds good. Sure. So um, one of the courses that I teach at the College of St. Rose is on periodical uh, periodicals and 19th century, early 20th century U.S. literature. And one of the challenges I faced in teaching that course in the early 2010s um, is the really was the really inadequate um, uh, availability of digitized black print and black periodicals, mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, in the 19th century and early uh, turn of the 20th century. Um, and in my students and I would talk a lot about the inadequacies of digitization and how digital uh, digitization and other kinds of preservation practices had failed black print. And uh, in conversations with Yuri, you know, I, I got tired of complaining about it and wanting to do something about it. The Colored American Magazine was a magazine uh, I was particularly interested in and was centered in that course. And uh, Yuri and I started talking about, you know, what, what could be done to make this text more available in digital form in a way that was more faithful to the original. I should say that the Colored American Magazine was at that time and still is available in the digital uh, digitization uh, that you can find on HathiTrust that was created by Google Books based on a, an earlier uh, reprint. Um, but it's black and white, it's not very high quality. Um, the, uh, it, it's based on bound volumes that were missing co many covers and advertising pages. So Yuri and I were interested in finding um, unstripped, you know, complete original issues. And could we make color versions of these available for freely available for use in by, by educators in the general public? So Yuri and I went on, a, on a, a hunt to find issues of this periodical. It was it led to a lot of 
uh, dead ends. Um, and, uh, and eventually, however, um, our search brought us to the Beinecke at Yale, which at the time owned uh, some, some 30 some issues of the periodical and the Beinecke generously agreed to photograph them for us. And that became the core of this project. And since then we've been fortunate enough to uh, locate additional issues at other research libraries. The Beinecke collection is still very much the core of what we have on uh, coloredamerican.org. Um, and, uh, and we're still searching for more. But uh, at this point, I, I think Yuri, we have about half of the issues that have, were ever printed right. um, yeah. uh, uh, in, di in digital form at this point. So, I mean, if any of your listeners have any in their attics, you know, let us know. Um, because we have a lot of librarians that listen to you. So this is good. This is a good project yeah. for them. Um, so we're very interested. Um, and so Up One Blood was serialized in the pages of Colored American Magazine, along with um, two of Hopkins' other novels. Hopkins was an editor and probably I would say, and I think Brian would agree with me, like one of the... Um, maybe the most significant figure at the Colored American magazine, like the force behind a lot of it. Um, you could see her name and her pseudonyms all over the pages of the magazine. And so um, this, this, this novel is one that I think a lot of people are interested in, but um, it's not like it wasn't. I mean, I think it's changing of uh, very well known to the greater public. I think mm -hmm. it was one that was like I read it as an undergraduate and I was like, whoa, this is wacky and crazy. What is this? Who is Hopkins? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, Brian and I uh, knew of um, Alicia Knight and John Grusser, who are other scholars um, who are doing an edited collection, uh, who are editing an edition of um, her other novel, Hagar's Daughter for Broadview. And um, we reached out to John and Alicia and asked them for help in getting con in contact with um, Broadview because we had long um, wanted a um, uh, edition that like provides more of like a support for readers because I mean this book is so like there's so many illusions it's very strange it's making so many references and there is like a whole debate around plagiarism which we can get into later mm -hmm. um, and so I've always when I teach it I always sort of wish I could help the students more uh, it, it seems to be a novel that is both immediately appealing. I mean, I, I heard um, Shireen call it, what did, did she say? It's um, Indiana Jones plus like Black Panther, which um, is a really good description of the novel. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that is um, difficult to understand and illusions that... Um, need to be traced out in order for the reader to get the full picture of what's happening. So it just seemed like a novel that would really benefit from an edition, you know, from having more like intro appendices, footnotes and things like that. And I, I would even uh, just add to that as well, that um, the fact that this novel appeared as a magazine serial along with uh, two other Hopkins novels, Hagar's Daughter, which Yuri mentioned a moment ago and Winona, um, uh, unlike Intending Forces, which was published as a book, means that it also bears the traces of the contingencies that come with periodical publication. And um, there are just textual issues with um, the text of the novel. Um, characters who are called Mira in one place and Mina in another and transpose lines and things like that. And previous editions of this novel have tended to just reproduce 
uh, the text as it appeared in the magazine. And we've taken care to correct um, some obvious errors that creeped in. You know, the, the Colored American magazine was always a, a, a magazine that was operating on a very tight budget and with a very tight timeline and with gr under conditions of precarity. In fact, in March 1903, the magazine nearly folded and that was five months, I believe, into the publication of Of One Blood. It's quite conceivable in alternative history where there, this novel was never completed, which was in fact the fate of Hopkins's final novel, um, Topsy Templeton. Um, so our edition um, uh, you know, addresses some of those issues by correcting um, typesetting and typographical errors that crept in in the production process that weren't, haven't been corrected in previous editions. Yeah, I, I feel like that is a great point to make. And just I can sympathize with Hopkins because as someone who has worked as a writer and an editor and on tight deadlines, those things are going to happen. And I love that you, you made a shout out to that. I, I sort of imagine Hopkins like scribbling furiously at night. I mean, like just, you know, so which I mean, we've all been there as and writers. She's writing most of the issues, right? Or quite a bit of the issues, too. I mean, she has all of those pseudonyms. I, there's loads. Mm -hmm. So she's doing all the lifting. She is. I mean, um, the, she has two main pseudonyms, and there's um, also anonymous uh, things that we suspect were uh, written by Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I think, it, I, yeah, Brian, I'm not exaggerating, right, to say that Hopkins is like, the main force behind the Colored American magazine. I mean, there are other people doing some work, right? And important people, but I feel like the Colored American ma magazine is Hopkins um, in, in the early years. Obviously mm -hmm. later on when she leaves, uh, things deteriorate, at least in our opinion. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a matter, I, I agree with Yuri 100%, and I, it, it's a matter of some scholarly debate um, at what point Hopkins becomes that force of nature? Is it from you know the second issue, the third issue, a year into its publication? Um, at some point, uh, though, she becomes essentially the editor in chief of the magazine, even though she isn't given that title until sometime in 1904 on the masthead. Um, she's named literary editor sometime in 1903. But between 1900, when the magazine was founded, and 1904, when she is ignominiously pushed out by um, cronies of Booker T. Washington, um, uh, during much of that time, it seems pretty, it's, it's pretty much the scholarly consensus that she was the force of nature behind this periodical. And those are the four years, uh, frankly, that most people are interested in. That's when the magazine is most uh, interesting and exciting uh, and, and features the publication of her three, three magazine novels. I should mention that just um, Lois Brown's biography on Hopkins is amazing and worth reading to learn more about Hopkins and um, the work of Alicia Knight and Hannah Wallinger also provide more details about Hopkins's life and her tenure at uh, the Colored American magazine. Now, we've discussed Hopkins on the um, podcast before and Hannah and I will probably set everyone up with just like a little tiny refresher. But is there anything about Pauline Hopkins that you just you want to get across or something that you personally um, just feel strongly about with regards to her? I, I, I guess there's this one story that I just really love about Hopkins. Um, and this is when um, 
This comes from a very famous letter um, that Hopkins scholars have sort of unearthed, um, and it's called the um, Trotter letter. And in this letter, um, she's writing to uh, Trotter, who was the editor of the Boston Guardian radical newspaper. And she's explaining what happened to her at the Colored American magazine, how she got pushed out and all of that. And one anecdote she gives is of um, this uh, John Freund, who was this um, white philanthropist that got involved with the magazine um, at the behest of um, Booker T. Washington. And um, she says, he brought me, uh, what did she say? She brought, he brought me African violets, a self-help self book and expensive furs. And I was super, and she basically says, I was confused why he brought these things to me because um, I am not a kind of woman that attracts the opposite sex. Right. And so she says this and um, basically what Freud is trying to do is he's trying to woo her into sort of being more conciliatory, not being so forceful in her fight for black rights, because he's sort of going along with the, he's trying to push Booker T. Washington's accommodationist uh, agenda. And so he thinks like, he's like, hey, you know, I'm gonna do this by like wooing her like a woman, right? And the flowers, self-help book, um, mm -hmm. you know, all of this. And so then she'll be bent to my will. And of course, Hopkins wasn't. I mean, she was just sort of like, you know, mm, I'm not into this. And, um, you know, I am so committed to um, the fight for Black lives. And so she just continues on until basically she has to be pushed out. I mean, she's doing, I mean, some people think of Hopkins as somewhat conservative because of her plots that focus on, um, women and people who, uh, men who are light-skinned, you know, and uh, there's this sort of like ge genteel sort of emphasis in her novels, middle-class, aspirational, you know, all of that. Um, but in fact, I mean, you can see in Hopkins's work how radical she is, and she just rejected both the Washingtonian accommodationist politics and also like this kind of... Mm, attempt by this sort of patriarchal figure to treat her like a conventional, um, like what he thought a woman might like at this time period. So I just, I feel like that really gives a sense of Hopkins's um, ideals, her political commitments, uh, and both her feminism and um, unwavering commitment to racial justice. That's amazing. The, a self-help book and a fur as well. Like that's... <laughs> Who wouldn't <Wild>. swoon, right? <laughs> Frankly, if someone gave me a self-help book, I would be like, <laughs> no, right. thank you, sir. <laughs> so, um, you know, speaking of this question of um, the emphasis in Hopkins's fiction on light-skinned characters and, quote, tragic mulata, end quote, plots, um, that, that inspire some critique today. Well, that criticism was also happening in Hopkins's own time. And um, this particular uh, letter written by, uh, by a white reader uh, criticized the colored American for its focus on um, love uh, between, uh, you know, inter intermarriage between people from different racial communities. Um, and, and again, criticized that from a white perspective. 
So Hopkins finds herself, uh, you know, in the response we find Hopkins responding to this criticism um, in a somewhat forceful and I would say also um, ironic way, um, essentially calling out Cornelia Condict for her paternalism and, and presuming to know what it is that black readers will enjoy and black readers should read and what black writers should write. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it remains this problem with her fiction um, that, that um, you know, I, I know that Shireen Sher Johnson last week talked about the, uh, the way in which some of her students uh, find it problematic, this emphasis on whiteness in Hopkins's text or, in, or on characters who pass. Um, but what's interesting about this exchange is that it suggests that Hopkins saw her commitment to these kinds of plots as a kind of resistance to attempts by white readers and white tastemakers to police the tone and content of black fiction. And so, you know, wh while I do think those criticisms are valid and, and, and should be explored, it's interesting in reading this letter to see the way in which Hopkins sees this particular focus of, of her fiction as a kind of act of resistance. Let's actually jump into Of One Blood. And I know most of our listeners have not read it or even probably heard of it outside of our Contending Forces episode. So do you guys want to give us just like a little synopsis and then we can really get into some of the the wildness. And I really want to hear like what sort of tangents or what sort of research deep dives you all went on. Um, so the thing about Hopkins novels is that super, super, super hard to summarize their novels, uh, her novels, right? I mean, uh, as you probably uh, saw with Contending Forces, I think one of the key things to remember about Of One Blood is that it was serialized in the pages of the magazine so that every it there would be installments and then it would stop at a super exciting point and it would say to be continued mm -hmm. and then it would you would have to wait the next month for the next installment of it and so i mean i i don't think we as readers or viewers experience this quite as much anymore in the age of binge watching i know when i was a child watching x files like this i was like on edge about every um episode but i don't think that we have this sort of feeling anymore but I think so. What this means is that with of um, of one blood, there's like so many exciting moments and little cliffhangers because of that, um, because of the necessities um, entailed by the uh, magazine form. So um, I guess to start, the main character is Ruel Briggs, and is it okay if I give spoilers, Lauren? Because yeah, like, yeah, it's we'll give everyone very a, hard we'll give everyone about. a little spoiler warning and okay. spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler, spoiler. Um, and so Ruel Briggs, um, the novel opens up, opens with Ruel Briggs, who's a Harvard medical student. Initially, we don't know that he is um, black. We assume that he is white just because he's in at Harvard Medical School. And, um, but, um, you know, and then um, so he turns out to be both a man of medicine, but also a man of mysticism. And so he meets a woman named um, Dianthe Lusk, who is a singer of the, of the Fisk um, Jubilee Singers uh, group, and she is black. And then one day she comes into um, the hospital and she is unconscious, been in a terrible accident on the verge of death. Um, and so Ruel has to use his medical skills to um, help resuscitate her. But it turns out that medicine is not 
enough here. And maybe I'll let Brian take it away here and I'll to be continued with Brian. <laughs> so in addition to being a medical student at Harvard, Royal Briggs is also a student of mesmerism or animal magnetism. And uh, this kind of, uh, his maverick studies are what allow him to save Dianthe Lusk from apparent death. Uh, and to bring her uh, back from that point. Um, but it is also one of the things that, that stymies his medical career. His, his maverick studies mark him out as, as somebody to, uh, not, uh, mark him out as, as um, out of step with the medical orthodoxy. Um, and in addition, his uh, rumors about his racial heritage uh, combine with that to stymie his medical career. So um, after Dianthe is resuscitated, um, they fall in love. He, she has lost her, her memory um, as well as her ability to sing, um, at least temporarily. And um, Royale takes it upon himself to conceal her racial identity <laughs> from her so that when she is restored, her, uh, restored to life um, from apparent death, she no longer knows uh, anything about her, her racial heritage which is I think a very interesting aspect of the yeah. plot. So they marry, but he doesn't have the material, um, uh, he, he's not able to materially support her because his medical career has been stymied due to racism and his reputation as a maverick. So he goes on an expedition to Africa as, um, as the medical doctor on this expedition uh, that is, uh, that is um, a, whose aim is to recover a lost city known as Telesar that's buried uh, in the sands of the city of Meroe um, in modern day Sudan, uh, but in classical Ethiopia. Um, I think I have to pass the torch to Yuri for the next section. <laughs> it's like, a, we need like sips of Gatorade along the way, yeah, definitely <laughs> or maybe shots. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, the, one of the important things to know is that this expedition, he is encouraged to go on this expedition by his friend, Aubrey Livingston, who is white, but I'm gonna say white like that. Mm -hmm. And so um, and so he says, I'll take care of Dianthe um, while you go off on this expedition. I'm helping you out. You're gonna get money there and then you could come back and be with your sweet wife. Right. So, and then Royal goes off. And then, of course, Diane, um, then uh, Aubrey starts making the moves on Dianthe. And he starts um, saying, okay, um, I'm in, he starts hanging out with her, making himself indispensable. And Brian, what does what it ha that happens? Is it that he, um, there's like, murder happens and various things and he eventually tells Dianthe I'm just glossing over the murder he <laughs> eventually tells Dianthe like hey I know that you're black Ruel doesn't know and he lies like crazy to her and she is like oh no what will Ruel do when he finds out that I'm black what will happen then and so Aubrey basically convinces Dianthe to marry him um and so there's bigamy here uh, also and all this time Ruel's over in Africa trying um you know writing letters that never get delivered to Dianthe and eventually 
what happens is, and uh, Rel, along with other members of the archaeological expedition, discover the lost city of Telesar. Um, there's a leopard attack also somewhere in there too. Uh, so there's a lot going on. There's drama and, every um, page. There's <laughs> drama, right? And so, um, so uh, in the lost city, he meets a woman um, named Candace, uh, who is the queen. And um, before this, he had he had received a letter saying that Dianthe was dead. And so he thinks that he is a widower. And um, what happens in Telesar is that Ruel start, is informed that he is the lost king. Um, and they say, oh, don't you have a lotus flower on a birthmark on your body? And that that's a sign that you're the lost king of Erga, um, lost king Ergomenus, and you're destined to marry Candace and rule overall. And the interesting thing about Telesar is that it's kind of, um, it's both like this, like, you know, it's a counter to those ideas of Africa as primitive, as backward, mm -hmm. because it seems um, far more, uh, it, it seems like in the future in a way, um, even as it's somewhat related to the past too. Mm -hmm. And they have um, mystical powers in Talasar um, and, um, Ruel sort of discovers his affinity to mysticism to a greater extent in Telesar. And I think I'm going to take a breath and let pass the baton to Brian. <laughs> I, I, I think we might want to re refrain from revealing uh, the last few chapters of the text for the sake of those who haven't read it. Um, but it, it, it comes to a conclusion that is both kind of a mixture of tragedy and a kind of monarch restoration plot let's say. Um, but uh, certainly, as Yuri said, one of the things that's really interesting about um, uh, what Royale discovers in Telesar is that his uh, gift for mesmerism, for animal magnetism, is very clearly then linked to um, African history and uh, is very clearly then made here an alternative to orthodoxies of Western medicine. So that's one way, as Yuri points out, that this lost African city is shown to be more advanced um, than, uh, than Western knowledge and constituting a kind of uh, active, repo not repository, but an active space of, of alternative knowledges. This has gotta be like a super exciting book to teach, I would think. Like how do the students react to it? It, it, my teaching of it has definitely changed after um, once Black Panther was released mm -hmm. because Telesar, of course, is is kind of like a proto Wakanda, um, and so I think the students um, get it a little bit more quickly than they did previous to the release of Black Panther because the students are savvier in the ways of Afrofuturism. Like they they understand um, what I mean when I say Afrofuturism, um, and of course, um, this idea of Afrofuturism is the idea of like thinking about. Um, 
Black people across the African diaspora as in the future, but connected to the past. And so related to technological advances and all of that, but also, so it's both like connected to the time of enslavement and also connected to a time of like a hopeful future. And um, this, and there's like, I think a lot of optimism in Afrofuturism because it's about sort of the beauty and um, strength and achievements of um, black culture, uh, both in the United States and in Africa and, and other parts of the diaspora. And so I think that um, before the release of Black Panther, I think my students like were like, what is this novel? And it was sort of hard. And then for them to sort of um, get a hold of, uh, at least initially. And then after Black Panther, it's sort of like, we can just say shortcut, you know, hey, it's like Wakanda, right? And then they're sort of like, okay, they're in it. They know it's like a work of speculative fiction. And then we can move into um, a greater discussion of its magazine publication and all of that. I know Brian teaches it pretty heavily in relation to his um, magazine course and other, uh, you know, its magazine context. Are there any big, um, what are the, like the big challenges that the students have with the novel? Hmm. It presumes a lot of knowledge. Okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of knowledge. One, one thing, um, you know, may, maybe this is the time to get into the, um, you know, the whole debate over Hopkins's borrowings. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, over, over the, uh, the last, oh, I suppose, decade, um, the scope of, uh, of Hopkins's borrowings in her, th in her three magazine novels in particular from other uh, published writings has become um, more clear. Uh, and uh, uh, Jeffrey Sanborn, a, a literature scholar, has um, uh, identified borrowings in Of One Blood in particular that amount to approximately 20% of the entire text, uh, the 20% of its text uh, by word count can be traced to other sources that are being either closely um, uh, borrowed from or, or, or verbatim copied. And so one of the things that I think is there, there's a lot of um, controversy and problems that this creates then for thinking about the text. But one of the good things is that it really reveals the scope of Hopkins's reading. She was an unbelievably eclectic reader. And that became so clear to Yuri and to me as we were putting this edition together, the, the scope of her curiosity, the scope of her interests, ranging over ethnography, uh, history, uh, work in uh, cutting edge work at the time in psychology, um, uh, popular fiction across multiple genres. I could go on and on and on. Her reading is, is just voracious. She was an unbelievably voracious reader. She would probably subscribe to this podcast. And, um, and so the novel does, very few readers above one blood have done as much reading as eclectically as Hopkins has. So there is a, there is a challenge there. Uh, it, it's one thing that I hope this edition helps with because mm -hmm. we've included a number of excerpts from texts that she clearly read while composing of One Blood or while, con while conceiving of the project. And um, by putting them there, it allows readers to see of One Blood at, in dialogue with these other texts and also enter into the debate over um, how she is using them and to what degree they are merely copying or to what degree they're trans 
transforming the originals or even critiquing them in fascinating ways. Um, but that's certainly, so, so that's both an exciting thing about teaching this text, but it's also a challenge. Her reading is just enormous and, and her expectation of what the reader brings to reading her novel is, is quite high. I'm guessing this was like probably really frustrating tracking down those bits of text too. Like, is there anything that, uh, well, I don't know, is there anything that maybe our listeners would recognize anything that she's referencing or any author that she's directly referencing? Do you want to talk about she, Brian? I mean, I think that's the most exciting one. Um, I mean, oh, well, I think all of them are exciting, <laughs> but he is um, pretty fun. <laughs> Where to begin? So this is this is one of the questions, right? Um, Jeffrey Sanborn is responsible more than anyone else really for um, being able to catalog the scope of her borrowing. So mm -hmm. though Yuri and I certainly made discoveries of our own and did our own digging, um, we're, we're very much in debt to the detective work that he did in tracing down these borrowings. Um, and so we followed up a lot of his uh, discoveries in order to find other places within those texts that Hopkins may have been borrowing from that had gone overlooked and so forth. But I, I just want to say we we did not have to do too much of this original detective work ourselves, thanks to the work of, of Sanborn. Um, one of the in one of his essays on the subject, Sanborn uh, says that it's it's hard to see Hopkins's use of her sources as transformative or subversive. Um, in part because it's hard to imagine that readers in her time, unlike our time when we can do uh, uh, text searches. Um, would have been able to recognize that they were borrowings at all. Mm -hmm. While I think that argument is makes a certain amount of sense, I, I resist it at the same time. Um, so first of all, some of the texts that she borrows were well borrows from were well known, as as Yuri mentions, H. Ryder Haggard's She, which was a very very popular work of um, lost world fiction. It helped uh, inaugurate that genre. Um, in which uh, uh, white characters travel uh, to Africa, uncover a lost civilization that's ruled by a despotic white queen named Asha, known as She, She Who Must Be Obeyed. Um, that was a best-selling novel, read uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, published not you know just um, something like ten years or so before Of One Blood. Readers of Of One Blood, I think, would have picked up on her allusions and echoes, uh, allusions to and echoes of that novel and be thinking of the way in which she is subverting or not subverting at different points, it's imperialist logic and patriarchal logic. Um, and, and the other thing that I would say is that in some cases, uh, in many cases, you don't necessarily need to know the specific source to see that Hopkins is subverting um, widely held imperialistic or white supremacist or patriarchal views that, um, that she's finding in traditional sources on history and ethnography. Um, so that, that's, what I would, that's what I would say that um, Hopkins's use of these materials, you know, I think the debate, the debate continues and our edition doesn't put this to bed. But when you look at her, her text alongside the materials um, that she's reading when she's conceiving of this novel and composing it, um, there are all sorts of ways we can see her engagement with these texts as much more creative, imaginative, and at times subversive um, than some have allowed for. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting for me to think about too, in particular, because like for Hannah and I, 
and our training and background is in like creative writing and me specifically, I study like TV writing and you're kind of always going back and like in conversation with old TV shows, essentially. That's kind of how you're almost trained to write. So, um, mm -hmm. so like, yeah, you're always ripping off I Love Lucy or, you know, whatever. You're always sort of there, but you're, yeah, you're in conversation as we like to say, rather than ripping off. <laughs> now, what is like, um, what was the most fun rabbit hole that you guys went on? Or maybe it was the most frustrating and now looking back oh. on it, it's fun. <laughs> Um, well, I can talk about what was the most frustrating is that um, there's a lot, especially in the middle section, Brian knows which chapter I'm talking about, about um, Ethiopian and Egyptian ancient history in here. And so um, I had to, like, I mean, we both had to track down a lot of these references so that we understood what was happening in the text. Mm -hmm. I mean, it got to the point that I was even um, emailing with the curator of the ancient Egyptian galleries at the Brooklyn Museum and asking her about the significance of the lotus flower in ancient mm -hmm. Egypt. <laughs> and so as someone who works on like 20th century African-American like periodicals and literature, that's not something I've had to do very much. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, that was actually um, both incredibly frustrating. Um, I probably need new glasses now because of how much reading I had to do but also super interesting and exciting um, work to do. So I guess it was frustrating, but also kind of fun. Uh, and I think one of the things that Brian and I have really enjoyed about this edition is just the detective work involved in having to teach us uh, uh, teach ourselves things. Like Brian uh, learned a lot about like medicine and about the history of medicine in relation to enslaved people um, for the purposes of this edition. Um, I think, Brian, one of the things that I really liked that you discovered was um, the uh, information about the smallpox inoculation. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but that was like a moment where I was like, oh, a lot of things suddenly make sense to me about what's happening um, in um, medicine at this time. Um, so because one of the themes of this text uh, or binary oppositions, I guess we could say that structures the text is between medical orthodoxy and uh, more kinds of uh, uh, mystical or spiritualist approaches to healing or to understanding the universe that are uh, alternatives to scientific orthodoxy, medical orthodoxy. Uh, one of the things that really interested us is how that maps onto the issue of race. And um, you know, one thing that I think is useful to uh, be, uh, is a useful frame for approaching this text is to think about the many ways in which orthodox medicine in the West and in the United States in particular has poorly served black people, um, treated black people as test subjects um, and also freely appropriated black medical knowledges and then made them orthodoxy. Uh, the example Yuri brings up is that um, the uh, introduction of, um, of smallpox uh, of smallpox inoculation in North America, um, as far as it can be determined, uh, happened in, in colonial Boston um, when an enslaved man named Onesimus, uh, who was uh, owned by Cotton Mather, uh, 
taught uh, uh, Cotton Mather the process of inoculation, um, which was an African practice. And um, Cotton Mather, in attempting to be an advocate for inoculation, encountered a lot of resistance in part because um, the source of this knowledge was African. The African source of this knowledge made it suspect for many. And that's just one way in which um, uh, the contributions of black people to medicine are often forgotten. And um, I think this novel in interesting ways tries to um, really complicate and break down, deconstruct maybe if we like the opposition between orthodox medicine and um, other kinds of healing practices. Um, work by you know, the historian Gretchen Long, for example, um, on uh, medicine on the Southern plantation talks about the fact that, that often when it came to medical care for enslaved people, medical care was primarily concerned with making an enslaved person fit for sale or fit to resume work. But the focus was not on the care of that person, was not on their relief from pain and so forth. And it was often non-official healers who were also enslaved, who were providing that kind of medical care. And so this whole, whole history seemed to me really, really pertinent and interesting for thinking about how this text explores this relationship between mesmerism as this maverick practice that ultimately is rooted in Telesar and Telesarian knowledge um, and the medical orthodoxy, which after all eventually ejects Royal Briggs on the basis of his, um, his racial identity. Of One Blood is a work of speculative fiction. So it, um, it, it like pushes the boundaries of what we consider to be reality. It also takes um, the history that we think is the true history and kind of pushes it and shows us different histories underneath that history mm -hmm. and pushes against kind of those racist ideas of both the past and frankly the present. And, um, and so, one of the things that it does is it's, it has a very serious um, purpose to the novel, right? It's like talking about the sins of slavery, how uh, the sins of slavery extend forward into the future, and um, which is kind of interesting to think about in the context of the reparations debates that have been happening in the past uh, few years. Um, but it also does so with a plot that is fantastical, wild, um, exciting, and um, there's a leopard, right? So, um, <laughs> and ghosts. And ghosts, there's so a ghost. murder. Yes, yeah, there's a ghost. There's um, mesmerism. Uh, there's um, all, I mean, there's a lot going on in here. I think Brian has described this novel as like including a crazy quilt of references. And I think that's a good description of it. And just when we think about African-American literature, I mean, I think that maybe the lay person might have a particular idea of sort of a realistic sort of mm -hmm. narrative, but I think that this is um, a sort of different way of looking at African-American literature and that can take you down to looking at say, um, other writers like Sutton Griggs, uh, who also does some um, speculative fiction, George Schuyler, who's wonderful. And then um, of course, in of, you know, the present day, more like um, Octavia Butler um, and other writers of spec black writers of speculative fiction. So I think that one of the things that Hopkins's novel does is it, it can like give you a sort of sense of how 
writers at the turn of the 20th century are thinking about race in a variety of ways. And then we can see a lot of resonances to the present day of 2022. You know, I, I, I couldn't possibly equal that, but <laughs> uh, I guess the only thing I would, I would um, add is, you know, um, we're all, we're having this conversation in, uh, in the aftermath, you know, Yuri has talked about the, the particular racial context, right, uh, in which we would be talking about this text in 2022. Uh, we're also talking about this text in the aftermath of post-structuralism and, you know, we're now 60 years, uh, almost 60 years after, you know, Bart's death of the author. And um, in some ways, despite the fact that Hopkins wrote this book in 1902 to 1903, I feel like in some ways, just in terms of how we approach texts today, that in some ways we've never been more prepared or well-equipped to read Hopkins than we readers who are alive today. I just happened to be teaching Death of the Author earlier today and saw uh, Roland, we discussed Roland Barthes' description of a text as um, a multi-dimensional space in which a variety of writings, none of them original, blend and clash. The text is a tissue of quotations drawn from the innumerable centers of culture. That description of a text could all, of course, Bart sees as applicable to every kind of writing and every instance of writing. I also could not imagine a better description of Of One Blood, which brings all of these different um, discourses um, into productive tension with each other. Our edition lets you kind of look at some of the sources that she's drawing on and doing that and think uh, even more critically about what she's up to. Um, but I think it's one of the things that makes this text so so polyvocal, um, multivocal, um, so full of fascinating internal tension and drama, even to the to when it comes to the title itself. You know, the title of One Blood is a reference to a moment in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, and it was a verse very popular with with Christian abolitionists who used it to assert the fundamental unity of humankind, right? And their brotherhood and sisterhood um, in God, right? Um, Hopkins uses this phrase though in, in multiple and not always compatible ways at different points in the text. At some points, yes, it's, it's part of this message of universal um, family of mankind. But at other times, and this is another spoiler, it refers to unintentional incest that occurs because of the ways in which um, slavery and its practice of institutional rape have, um, have made secret genealogies. Um, and so there, this idea of the oneness of blood relates to this, this very has this very different kind of signification. Um, so from the very first three words of the text, that title, to the last page, this is a text uh, that really invites the reader to think about textuality in a really sophisticated way and to think about writing as a, a space where different kinds of voices come into productive and fascinating uh, tension with it, one another. I do have a question for you and you might not know the answer to this. It's just something I've been sort of thinking about during this interview. Um, any idea about like Hopkins like writing process itself? Like was she outlining and then sort of like on the gun, or was she um, ahead? Of, was she a, was she writing ahead? I mean, crazy, crazy question to ask as an editor. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I think the one that um, we would really like the definitive answer to. Um, Our edition does talk about some clues that we see in in the text. uh, So to give us some ideas about her compositional practices. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the the novel was advertised before it showed up in the pages of the Colored American Magazine. It was clearly like going to be a an event, right, mm-hmm. for it to be published. And, um, but there are hints throughout the pages that she is writing as she goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, there's um, one Boston Globe article that uh, she uh, borrows from in her novel. And it just came mm-hmm. out, I think, I don't know, what is it, two or three months before the installment comes out? Is that right? Um, and so it feel and there are and you know there are some errors that we don't know if they are her errors or the errors of the editors pub you know the printers whatever that suggests some haste in writing um and uh, we've all been there um sure. and <laughs> no judgment and so, <laughs> no judgment whatsoever <laughs> and so um so I think Brian and I have the feeling that perhaps she had outlined this before because, I mean, the plot really, I mean, it's a very strong plot that Mm -hmm. comes back really nicely at the end, but that um, she might be writing this like late at night, you know, under Mm -hmm. the gun. Of, um, and uh, along the way, uh, along with everything else that she's juggling, because even as this, uh, the installments are being published in the pages of the Colored American Magazine, we see other stories by her being published alongside it in the same issue. So mm-hmm. I don't know where she got her energy from, but clearly right. she was able right. to make it work. <laughs> That's interesting. So maybe yeah. she could be somewhat, somewhat like response responding to like current issues of the day or maybe even letters to how people are mm-hmm. feeling about the story possibly yeah. yeah i mean one of the interesting and um things about the having it about the magazine um context is that you know like magazines are such like weird beasts where there's all these sort of um uh, coincidences but are there coincidences so for mm-hmm. example you know of one blood shows up in um the same issue as like um, like her, that art of that uh, letter that Brian was talking about, where the white um, reader writes in questioning uh, her use of or the magazine's use of interracial marriages in their plots and things like that. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there's an advertisement that's throughout a lot of the issues that is for skin bleaching creams um, mm-hmm. for Black people, and that seems kind of interesting to think about in relation to the passing element of um, the novel. And so some of this you're like, mm, is some of this on purpose or is just this, this is just the contingency of the magazine form? And um, to what extent is Hopkins being influenced by the issues like as she's creating what she's thinking about in her composition of the magazine, of the novel? I would just add to, to what Yuri said, I, and just want to confirm that Yuri, you were correct. It was September 1902 that that Globe article appeared, so just one month before it began while other sources are as early as 1884, um, a, a bunch of uh, texts published in Frank Leslie's popular monthly uh, in 1884 show up in this text, was was Hopkins just rereading these 1884 mm-hmm. issues of this magazine in 1902 and 1903, 
or had she already been inspired by or finding a way to use these and incorporate these into an early draft of this text? Yuri and I have discussed and thought about this um, and without any firm conclusions, but it's fascinating to think about. The final installments do incorporate a lot of um, work from one particular text, which does lend credence to maybe writing under the gun in those final in those final chapters, mm -hmm. perhaps. But again, as far as I know, all that we could do is could sort of speculate on the basis of the evidence in the text itself, um, because I don't know that we have um, any examples of outlines or or right. earlier drafts of the novel here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is there any um, like issue of Colored American Magazine that it's like a holy grail that you guys are looking for? Is there anything in particular that you're like, we need? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Lauren, for helping. <laughs> I mean, uh, pretty much anything we don't have. I mean, we uh, our issues are the issues that we have are available on um, coloredamerican.org. There are a few others that are not there yet that we will be putting up eventually. But um, we are especially interested in the issues from the Hopkins era. And, and the, there are some like issues that are missing um that uh, contain installments of say Hagar's daughter that we would love mm -hmm. to have one blood but maybe Brian can we say that we really wish we had the first issue maybe that's one we don't have I mean like we we have our our website starts from the second issue because we have not yet been able to find a original copy of the very first issue mm -hmm. of uh magazine so um let us know <laughs> now just one last question for you both do you have any reading recommendations for our listeners? Oh my gosh, are you really wanting to open these floodgates? <laughs> We're English professors. That's, we love giving a what to read. I <laughs> love a book recommendation from an English professor. It's pretty much um, this entire I'm show. <laughs> I'm laughing because, of course, right now I'm suddenly like have a my mind has gone blank. Of course. <laughs> Um, I don't know. What do, what do you think, Brian? Like, um, I guess, okay, so here's some recommendations for early speculative fiction for your listeners if they're interested. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everyone knows about, well, I hope everyone does. This is probably not true. I, I hope everyone knows about like Octavia Butler and Kay Jemison of like now, right? Mm -hmm. But um, thinking about the early 20th century, um, like, if you like speculative fiction of the early 20th century, turn of the century, um, there's a short story by W.B. Du Bois called The Comet that is amazing, um, Apocalypse, all of that's there. Um, Sutton Griggs' Imperium Imperio, um, which is also amazing late 19th century uh, novel. Um, and then there's uh, in the 30s, uh, George Schuyler's Black No More, which is a novel that kind of deals with the idea of what would happen if they developed a process that turned um, black people white? Um, and so, and it's a very satirical novel that's um, just, it kind of satirizes Du Bois and other big figures of the Harlem Renaissance, but does it in this um, non, you know, he, he's, he's using this, the ideas of science fiction in his writing. So I think those are some good um, novels and uh, short stories to check out if you develop a taste for speculative fiction of the early 20th century. Um, but let's see, I guess um, 
that's it for right now that I can think of. Brian, do you have anything? Save me, Brian. Oh, I guess here's another one. Uh, Here, I I, I suddenly got excited about magazines, um, reading black magazines. It's um, that I would, I mean, I know that's something that, Maybe uh, that seems very academic to read the the black magazines of the late 19th century, early 20th century, but I think there's a lot to be found in these magazines um, and a lot of discoveries that people can make just because, you know, there's no scholar that can read every single page of every black magazine. And I think that there's a lot of um, hidden gems in there. So for example, in the crisis magazine uh, in in the 1920s, there's a short story called Lex Talionis. Um, and I think I mentioned the, the George Schuyler novel, Black No More, where there's a process that turns Black people white. In the 1920s, um, this guy named Robert Bagnall w- came up with a short story where there, there's a revenge plot where a man, um, a Black man turns a white man black as revenge. And so um, so that's kind of the sort of things you can find in black magazines, these like hidden gems that you didn't know existed. And then you could think about, hey, this magazine has this like lynching plot. Lynching is a key element of that short story. And thinking about it in relation to the Crisis Magazine, which was the official organ of the NAACP. Um, and um, thinking about the overall mission to um, end racial violence of the NAACP. CPN of the Crisis Magazine and how fiction can work to to further activist ends and um, work towards racial justice. Um, so read black magazines. I guess this is what I'm that's a sort of perfect recommendation. And uh, so I'll just uh, point everyone to uh, Hopkins's first serialized novel, uh, Hagar's Daughter. And, her first novel was Contending Forces, but the first one to be published in magazine form was Hagar's Daughter, just released by Broadview, uh, I believe last year, edited by our, by our good friends, Alicia Knight and John Grusser. And that particular novel, um, not unlike Of One Blood, is concerned with the um, idea of hidden histories and forgotten histories and concealed histories. Unlike Of One Blood, which is a lost world adventure novel with all sorts of supernatural elements, Hagar's Daughter is really a detective story, much like Hopkins's short story, Tom and Gordon. Um, But it's a detective story that's united to this meditation on historical memory. And at a time when we in this country are seeing this debate over how children in schools should be taught about the country's racial history and what they should know about um, about slavery and civil rights, um, it offers a really cautionary uh, uh, lesson to us, as well as being a great read, about um, the risks to a society that chooses to live in the dark and chooses to um, uh, engage in a willful amnesia about its past. And we are back. Lauren, I think we need to be transparent here. When you're like, oh, most of our listeners haven't read or heard of this book, people, she may, she means me. <laughs> I haven't read it. I've never heard of it. Surprise, surprise. Uh, You'd love I am, it. You, you love I, no, Pauline I know Hopkins. I, would. I yeah. love Pauline Hopkins. I love the sound of speculative fiction. I'm mm-hmm. feeling very lucky and kind of smug, if I'm honest, that my first reading is going to be like such a thorough one. What mm-hmm. is the word that Karitha used last week? Rigorous. Yes. A rigorous reading of this book. 
Indeed. And I was also really interested to hear about Yuri's students' responses to the book and how it changed in response to the release of Black Panther and their increased familiarity with Afrofuturism. Like, I really Mm -hmm. just need to read some speculative fiction right now, especially the comet I'm in. Sounds like a sci-fi. I googled it. It's a sci-fi. You know, that's great. Love a short story. Where's my library card? I'm just, (laughs) I just want to get on it. I think it might be my new favorite genre. I feel like we should do a mini season that focuses on speculative fiction. Early speculative like we haven't gone there right we haven't gone there how many gals are writing it though not a lot that's like a two episode mini scene i know yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's very mini it's micro honestly micro season um so last week we talked about harper's like sentimentality and then also jacob's like realism Mm-hmm. And uh, here I think it's really interesting that Hopkins is just like playing with a bunch of the same themes, but she's giving us genre. She's always giving us genre. She's Hopkins giving us sci-fi. Yeah. Oh my God. She's giving us detective stories. She's giving us ghost stories. Like this is a woman after my own heart. And this is why I think she's so modern too. Like mm-hmm. she just plop her in right now in 2022. Like she would just be like, yeah, I HBO, I got a limited series for you. Don't worry about it. Like, I, I love, can do it. I love as well, because it was discussed in our episode, the first one on Pauline Hopkins a lot, how she, what was the word? Blackifies? Is that mad? Did I make that up? <laughs> what was the word? Blackens. 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 Blackifies. Yeah. She, um, she blackens like all of these texts that you're really familiar with and then like mm-hmm. puts the spin on it. And I love that. Mm hmm. You know, Absolutely. like I couldn't get over the similarities with Gaskell last time. So, yeah, just Hopkins. Give her a read. I, um, I'm really excited for this edition, too, because it includes her short story, which is really hard to track down. Like I was digging in some archives mm-hmm. uh, looking for that ghost story that she wrote for um, the Colored American magazine. The so, individual, individual, like short stories or essays uh, they can be really hard to find and so I think the last thing I wanted to say was just how grateful I think we probably both are to Brian and Yuri for their work and just anyone out there who is digitizing uh, Mm -hmm. magazines or newspapers I really really relied on accessing 19th and early 20th century periodicals and newspapers when working on why she wrote and yeah. you know all the time for the show and so if this interview just gets one one more magazine on the internet then yeah. that you know it's a great thing right so look Absolutely. in your attics <laughs> find those missing periodicals you guys come on you can do it um also i've been using them a lot for um our mixtapes mm. so that's all the time we've got for this week Another big thank you to Brian and Yuri for joining us. We are both super excited for your edition of Of One Blood. And uh, guess what? Next week, what we're going to do, finally, after like three years of talking about it. (laughs) It's finally here. Finally here. We are going to talk about novelist Nella Larson and discuss her novel Passing and the recent movie adaptation. We have some discussion threads up already. One is a non-spoiler that like no one is really talking much in. 
People want to talk about the spoilers. They want to talk about the spoilers. So get in that spoiler thread and tell us your thoughts. What did you think about the movie? What did you think about the book? What are your thoughts? It's a short read. If you haven't read it yet, just go read it now. It's Don't really cool. Don't me out, Lauren. I'm going to read it. I'll have read it by next time. It's on you the can list. listen to a free version on YouTube, a LibriVox recording, if you need to. Also, with LibriVox on YouTube, if you have, like, for example, you know, this is a very loose example. If you have a seven and a half hour audiobook that you really need to read in two days, you can just just let that play speed. in the background. <laughs> you can put it on two times speed. <laughs> But beware, if you do that, you also have to read the Project Gutenberg at the same time because it, it doesn't sound like a human story. Yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> if you'd like to listen to a book read by Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, <laughs> it's your friend. That's, that's for you. <laughs> so Hannah, if people want to share their thoughts with us on Pauline Hopkins or Passing, where did they go to do that? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn and you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And if you like the show, if you love us, leave a review. Thank you.